You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Hello, this is Michael Webb. Welcome to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. Many people focus on reaching senior level executives, brand value, and marketing to help companies reach their financial objectives. Other people focus on data and evidence and eliminating waste. In this podcast, we talk about both in order to motivate people and create value for everyone. My guest today is Bill Waddell. Um, For those of you in the lean uh, industry or have been around lean, you probably know Bill Waddell. Uh, People who may not know him are also largely in my audience because we come from a sales and marketing background. So, Bill, please uh, take a couple of minutes here and describe your background and how you got where you are and what you do today. Well, uh, glad to describe my background. How I got here is mostly the hard way, but uh, (laughs) uh, I've been involved involved in, uh, uh, in lean and business excellence uh, actually, uh, since before the term lean was invented, back when uh, we were all struggling in the mid-late 1980s to understand what Toyota was doing, and back then we called it JIT, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was only in uh, 1989 when the machine that changed the world came out that, that everyone then categorized it as lean. But those were pretty heady days in uh, business and the manufacturing in particular, uh, was in that same time period that uh, Motorola conjured up Six Sigma and did amazing things that Eli Goldratt came out with mm-hmm. a city of constraints. Uh, and a guy named Tom Johnson wrote a, an incredible book uh, of the relevance lost, the rise and fall of management accounting. Yep. Uh, all of those things kind of played a part in my early development. And I was working for a division of Emerson that happened to be working for a guy named uh, Dean Rui who was a very idea-oriented and very visionary uh, senior executive and gave me a tremendous opportunity to really study and learn all those things in depth. Um, And kind of based on on that knowledge, uh, had some early success with Lean at at, uh, Copeland, left uh, Emerson to go be a part of some turnaround efforts at a company called Cincinnati Microwave and then with McCulloch Chainsaw. Um, And uh, both of those were successful from a turnaround standpoint, um, not very much fun from an emotional standpoint. Uh, hardcore turnarounds are kind of gut-wrenching activities. But mm-hmm. I realized then that, uh, that I really enjoyed helping companies in trouble, kind of made a career decision that I'd like to help companies that weren't, weren't so far in trouble, uh, <laughs> that, uh, uh, that, uh, that slashing and burning the turnarounds entail uh, was necessary. And so I've been uh, consulting in the lean area uh, since the late 1990s, I guess, the uh, better part of 20 years. Um, and along the way, really became more and more convinced that it's all about how you manage the company, that the tools are, are great. There are a lot of people out there who are good with the tools, um, but it's really about those core management processes, starting with uh, accounting. Uh, but in how the supply chain is constructed and works, how the company fits together, how the strategy drives mm-hmm. and connects everything. But I've really been focused more on the management and cultural end of, of Lean for the last several years. And along the way, I've had uh, great opportunities. I was uh, one of the original thought leaders at the Lean Accounting Summit uh, since 2005. Mm-hmm. had an opportunity to be the technical chair of the International uh, Lean Six Sigma Quality Conference uh, for a few years. 
um, and uh, met and learned from an awful lot of amazing people and had an opportunity to work with and uh, learn from while I was helping some uh, pretty amazing executives. So it's been quite a ride and uh, a long learning experience, but uh, that's kind of my background in a nutshell. Excellent. So I'm, I'm, we met at the uh, uh, conference held by Lean Frontiers back in 2016. And uh, I'm looking at the slides that you used uh, back at that conference. And, and you mentioned Lean Accounting. Uh, you also in here uh, a lot of focus on uh, product management, product development, and, and how how the product is designed because it kind of creates a waterfall of value down through the channels. Um, so now, are you, is your background accounting or is it primarily product development? Well, uh, you know, my, uh, my college education is in accounting and I tell people I worked in, uh, in accounting for three or four years, but uh, after 30 some years, I'm fully recovered from that experience. So I know <laughs> Enough accounting to be uh, to be dangerous. My yeah. core background is uh, uh, in uh, industrial engineering, supply chain operations management, um, and it's only really in the last uh, you know five or ten years that I've been more deeply involved in the sales and marketing part of the organization. Uh, really, just because uh, one thing that I have uh, learned and, and become quite convinced of is that the the business is a is a completely integrated enterprise. Right. Uh, the silos are the 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 biggest obstacle in any business, and in far too many businesses, um, their their lean effort, their improvement efforts um, are really segregated. Up, you know, almost two halves of the business joined by accounting, but the sales and marketing folks are off doing their thing, and the right. operations folks on the other side doing their thing, only connected by the terrible link of accounting, which is horribly inaccurate. But in far too many companies, you know, when you ask the sales and marketing folks what their plan is, um, I've found that they tend to be very eloquent speakers. And so they'll give you a, a very impressive answer. But what it boils down to is, you know, what are you trying to sell? Whatever we can. Who are you trying to sell it to? Anyone who will buy it. How much <laughs> you trying to sell? As much as we can sell. Oh, um, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, But so that, that, that doesn't fit too well with uh, the people who are putting the cost structure in place and, uh, you know, and, and setting the capacity of the company that having this uh, wildly erratic demand flow uh, coming to them is uh, – uh, is a challenging at best and doesn't put the company in the best position. The most profitable a company can be is when they're operating at full capacity, not over it, not under it, but but uh, you know just right under what their maximum capacity is. That's when the company makes the most money. Right. So it's all about how do you set the capacity in place and then uh, manage demand uh, so that it hits that hits that level. And and this brings us to. Um a uh, statement, a very bold, clear statement that you put on one of the slides, um, and it says, remember, marketing is a non-value-adding function. And I, I might, I'm, I'm guessing that to a large degree, you would say sales also is a non-value-adding function. Is that true? I would. Um, you know, it's, you and I chatted a little bit before, and, and I've 
sure, you might have some examples where marketing, uh, you could convince me that there's uh, value for customers. And it's important to remember when we talk non-value adding, I'm talking value in the eyes of the customer. Uh-huh. Um, and value for the customer is di- is a different proposition than necessary for the business. Right. Um, it might be valuable for the business or necessary for the business, um, but it's not creating value in the eyes of the customer. And I think with uh, sales, that's largely true too. Although uh, there are a lot of organizations, a lot of companies where it's uh, a very consultive sales process, where the sales folks are working closely with the customer actually in in uh, configuring the product and and you know honing in on that that exactly what the customer values. And so I, you know, there are those cases where it's you can make that case that sales is adding value, but for the most part, uh, uh, as I said, you, know, you get two two similar objects. You know, you're strolling down the aisle at Walmart, and one of them is five dollars, and one of them is four dollars. And the core question is, when the customer says, "What's the extra dollar for?" Is your answer something that's going to get them to say, "Yeah, okay, I'll I'll buy it." And typically, if the answer is, well, we got to pay for an ad campaign or a big ERP system or for a room full of accountants or, you know, the customer's going to say, no, thank you. I'll take the $4 one. Mm-hmm. But if the answer is because of this product is, uh, does more precisely what you need it to do, it's made from better materials. So it's going to, uh, uh, last longer, um, that it's going to be more reliable. Um, then the customers have to say, yeah, I'll pay the extra dollar. And so, so that's really kind of the lens when I talk value adding or non-value adding with with marketing and sales. That's what I'm that's what I'm referring to. Um, all right. So so um, and in B two B, it tends to be at least people try to be more fact based and objective in their decision making. Um, but still, using the B two C example of a product in Walmart. Um, it, it, you know, there are companies that have a different pers- that the market perceives differently because of the promotion or the, um, um, you know, the, just the context in which and the value propositions that are in their promotions and the way it's displayed in the store. Um, and a, an example, I'm trying to think of an example on a shelf in a Walmart and a a different example leaps to mind, unfortunately, but you're driving down the highway late at night and you're looking for a hotel and one billboard says, you know, sleep cheap, right, at this hotel. And another one over here says, rest assured, right? There's different perceptions of quality that those communications give you. And there are people in the market who would respond to either one, right? Yeah, but, you know... Um, there's no doubt, you know, that, that how the product is branded and how it's advertised, um, has an effect on, on getting people to buy it. Um, but, you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Um, so I'll go to the rest assured place because I think that that's going to be safer. And, you know, I, I believe what they said. Yep. Um, and if, if it's product, not, you're in trouble, right? If the product doesn't deliver, then I'm not going to buy it again. That uh, yep. You know, you can induce customers to do things or to try a product, um, but you're going to keep a pro- customer with that product based on the value of the product. That's right. Um, that's right. And and, so, and people so get. I've mentioned before, you know that that you can certainly get a short-term boost um, from uh, from marketing and from 
brands. And, and it certainly is necessary, particularly if you've got a new product or if you're a new company or a growing company, to get people to be aware of the fact that you're out there. Uh, but in the, uh, in the long haul, it's going to come down to whether the product is any good or not. And, you know, I think it's also interesting in the times that we're living in that that's, uh, that's becoming more and more true, that people are relying, you know, they'll read your ad, they'll listen to the marketing campaign, um, but they're going to, you know, before, before my, my wife and a lot of people I know decide which hotel they're going to go to, they're going to look at TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. They're not going to listen to your, what you have to say about it. They're going to listen to what consumers say. Absolutely true. And so, you know, the ability to fact check and uh, and get other sources of information um, really just all drives towards the, the product itself having to have that value. And, um, and I agree with that, that the product itself, you have to have integrity to the promises that you're making and to what the customer expects. But the customers experience um, both sides of that coin. Sometimes they get a better experience than they expected for a product. They thought, you know, well, let's just go sleep cheap tonight. And they end up with a better experience. And they may become committed to that or trusting that brand for a long time. But sometimes the reverse is true also. And it, it, So the value offered by sales and marketing communications is the, the landscape there is dramatically changing because of things like TripAdvisor and the comments on the Amazon page. It's a truly a sea change in the way commerce is conducted uh, these days. But let me put in front of you an example, and I have several clients that are doing this, and this is a B2B kind of example, okay? Um, a company makes, uh, excuse me, it's not a, it's not a, they don't manufacture anything, they distribute. They distribute um, the tiny little, um, they call it popcorn, types of product parts that are soldered onto a circuit board. Resistors, capacitors, I don't even know what they're all called, right? That sort of thing. Very highly specialized, highly commoditized industry. Um, and the, the it's a distributor now. And this distributor has made its uh, place in the market, is valued by its customers, because they have this skill of finding sources of those parts that tend to be in short supply and guaranteeing that what they sell is not a Chinese uh, you know, counterfeit knockoff. And so their sales force is going to market to these buyers, small and medium-sized manufacturers. This is out in California. Um, and, you know, have you, what have you got today <laughs> to these uh, junior purchasing agents that have to source these parts? And when the market is growing and these manufacturers are producing more and more, they can make a really good living selling those components like that. But when the market is not doing so well, then it becomes a very scarce, hard to make a living uh, for this distributor. And he found a way to fix that problem or to work to, to add more value. And it was to understand the needs of those manufacturers more thoroughly, understand not just their production engineering requirements, but also their sourcing requirements, their inventory and supply requirements, and be able to guarantee them they would have the right parts at the right time. In other words, outsource the purchasing function of all of that class of parts and supply that customer a bill of materials 
um, and do it at a lower overall total cost than they could do it before with their own junior purchasing agents out there sourcing these things. Do you see that as value added on the part of the distributor? Yeah, of course. You know, I think that uh, what it sounds like is is the guy uh, is creating a great deal of value for for his customer. Um, that he's uh, probably the heart of it is is realizing that he's not a uh, you know, resistor capacitor um, distributor, but that he's a supply chain uh, outsourcing company. You know, and I think realizing that he's his value is in his supply chain service, not necessarily in the parts that that customer can get anywhere. Um, and so, yeah, I, clearly, you know, the guy's created a, a worthwhile value proposition for the company. Um, but that okay. that's yeah. different from you know that's different from uh, you know a, a, a similar company that. It doesn't necessarily manage the supply chain as well, um, but who has got you know a more impressive marketing campaign, advertising campaign, who's flooding the uh, you know the the customer base out there with you know tales of their great capabilities. Um, you know if if those capabilities if his capabilities are superior, in the long haul he's going to win. Yes, yes, he so, absolutely is. So, you know, I think in that case, product management, um, I think it sounds like it's it's spun up to a pretty high level. They understand their product and they're managing it pretty well. Well, you and know, the, it, it's interesting because the transition, the, the job of the salesperson in that company is drastically different. If you are, you know, the, being the traditional jobber and calling people up and saying, you got any parts for me today versus if you're getting that customer to talk to you and open up about their business problems and open up about the challenges they've had when they discovered they had counterfeit parts or when they discovered that their inventory records were wrong and they didn't have the product in supply and had to shut down the, you know, the production line. Um, it is a whole different caliber of sales activity and skill that goes into um, making customers behave in that way. Uh, you know, my guess is that the salespeople that are doing that, if they're effective, um, yeah, sure, they got to know the they got to know the product. But um, if they're successful at that, it's because they are pretty smart with the supply chain. They can figure out how to integrate with the the planning and purchasing and supply chain processes of those customer companies, which is a um, whole different set of knowledge. Yes, it is. And recognizing that they're selling a different product. You know, then right years ago, they probably didn't know much about the supply chain. They were just in there pitching resistors and capacitors. Now they're in there pitching their ability to deliver on time and reliability and quality and right. uh, they can uh, uh, reliable supply chain element to the company. But yeah, it's there is just a supply chain outsource company, and uh, I've, I've seen companies like that. I've had experience with them, and, uh, and I've, I've worked in supply chain leadership and. Uh, yeah, when you find a company like that, it's golden. Sounds like a pretty smart person running that company. <laughs> well, he'll be happy to hear you said that. 
So, so here's another scenario. Confirmation. I'm sure his, his banker can give him all the confirmation of his intelligence. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that would be affirmative there. So, but but it, it, there's another. Here's another example of a, a company similar condition, only in the building materials company, okay? building materials industry. And I had a memorable dinner uh, with a fellow who works there as as one of the corporate uh, uh, officers of the organization. And they are a supplier, uh, and they because it's into the building materials industry, they're supplying all sorts of contractors and and um, you know it's a it's a just a jumbled up um, people uh, out in the marketplace that they're supplying. In 2008, um, when the big recession hit and the markets, especially in building materials, contracted, um, that was very, very painful for people in that uh, in the distribution industry and for the contractors who were who were you know taking jobs and and building uh, buildings and, and and constructing things. And what was big on his mind was, how do we survive the next recession? What do we have to do as a supplier in the supply chain in order to be sure that, you know, we don't go under because it's like put two people in a cage and have a cage match and say, which one can reduce their price the most because the, the customers are in the driver's seat, right? It's a... It, the market is starved for people buying things, and so the customers take advantage of that by squeezing the prices, and that's very, very difficult on supply chain companies. I'm sure you've seen that happen. How would you how would you analyze that? Well, um, you know, I think it's. I mean, there's a limit when uh, when something like 2008 or 2009 happens and the market just uh, just collapses. Then you know, there's a limit to what anybody can do. You know, in a when it's when it's that that radical um yeah but i gotta believe uh you know it's uh it's also a a challenge depending on how big or what percentage of the market um the the guy has i have a son-in-law who's a contractor um in a small town in illinois that's shrinking and dying and people ask him how you know, I mean, the, the number of new houses being built every year goes down and down. It, it, its view is, well, as long as it doesn't go below one, he doesn't have a problem. <laughs> he gets that one. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I guess it it it, it kind of depends. Um, but not knowing enough about his business, I don't know how he would uh, solve more problems for the for the contractors uh, when it's shrinking that that greatly, but it's just a matter of everybody didn't die. You just want to make sure that you're one of the last men standing when it contracts that far. But you know, I guess I, I can't help him when the when the total economy collapses right. that way. No. Um, but I think you know he also maybe needs to take a hard look at uh, you know again not knowing that much about that industry, mostly anecdotal from my son-in-law. But you know the the contractors that I know when that happened, uh, the market switched from. From new home construction to uh, remodeling, fixing the old place, mm-hmm. um, and maybe taking a hard look at what's he providing, and is he as good a source um, for the small remodeling, a lot of small remodeling jobs, as he was for delivering for you know, 
big jobs for new construction. Well, um, there's actually a lot of things that those distributors can do. And, and the, uh, I think that there's parallels between the residential construction and uh, commercial construction. But consider that and my client that I had dinner with, I was mentioning, was primarily in commercial construction. And so I asked them, so all these contractors and people that buy from you, are they all created equal? Well, no. Okay. So how would you break them apart? How would you analyze which ones are best for you and which ones are like not so good? Could you define the observable characteristics of those things? Well, you certainly could do that. That way you can begin to rank order those customers and get the ones who respect value, who do business in an orderly way, who have really good credit, the ones who have the stamina to probably withstand the next recession, and you prioritize those people over the ones who might be overnight, you know, jobbers and maybe not proven. That's one thing. Well, you, you bring up a, a great point there, Michael. And, uh, you know, that's something that I've worked with a number of companies over the years on is, is what's their criteria for taking on a customer? Yeah. And far too many companies, the, 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 you know, the answer to that is if they're check or clear, then we'll sell to them. Right. Um, and, uh, but being selective about, customers not just you know whether they can uh, withstand a recession but what's their strategy are they going to be around for a long time um, are they ones that are going to challenge you and make you be better right are you going to grow with, you know not just grow your business grow your sales um, but grow your capabilities as a as a result of having to stretch to to keep up with them um, well, are they people who are going to who are going to work with you in the long term or are they ones that are going to dump you as soon as somebody will sell it to them a nickel cheaper well, but and it, really taking strategic, and that means having the discipline to say, no, we're not going to sell to that guy. Yes. Um, and, uh, and far too few companies have that, you know, when somebody's dangling money out in front of them, yep. it's awfully tough to say no. Right. Uh, but and, you got to have the discipline to say no. So you said a really important thing. If they're going to make you better, right? And, and in order to do that, they're going to, like you said, they're going to challenge you. And for a distributor, it takes us into the next subject, the issue of managing one of these distribution companies. What part of the work that we do truly adds value for the customer and what part doesn't? Does having order entry clerks entering orders for your customer, does that add value? Or would the customer like to have their own purchasing people just enter orders in exchange for uh, you know, longer-term commitments and and uh, maybe price uh, agreements, but certainly service-level agreements over time. It's something that you wouldn't give to every one of your customers, but to the preferred ones, why wouldn't you consider doing something like that? And most people in the distribu distribution industry, anyway, they don't really look at, nobody's really showed them how to look at what they do as a value-added enterprise. They they just get a thrill out of being on the road and finding a deal and being salesmen and going in a big deal and let's go do it again kind of thing. And I think that that jeopardizes that whole industry. Well, I think that whole industry is at risk anyway, unless they're stepping up to this. Um, you know, one of the oldest and most uh, uh, on point adages in business is cutting out the middleman. And if the distributor isn't doing anything other than buying it from one company and selling it to another, and they're not doing anything much beyond that, right? Uh, then they're at enormous risk. 
I think, uh, um, you know, a lot of distributors uh, survive uh, as a result of the fact that a, an awful lot of CEOs don't look beyond their own company at the overall supply chain. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Jim Womack, the the, uh, the guy who's kind of the 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 big name and the, mm-hmm. the coined the, the term lean, and uh, and he told me about their experience at Lean Enterprise Institute when uh, they wrote Learning to See, which was a book that that right. first explained value stream mapping, how to map processes you know uh-huh. throughout the company, um, which is kind of uh, integral to lean success it was a hugely successful book can't remember the numbers but he sold tens of thousands of copies they made a lot of yep. money and yep. big big success and he thought well you know if they like that they're going to love what i'm going to do next and he convinced ford to let him work with them and they basically uh, developed a, wrote a book called seeing the whole but it was on developing a value stream map that goes from one end of the supply chain to the other from the, you know, the, yep. in Ford's case, you know, a tier three supplier all the way through to the customer, but showing how all these companies connect and how your whole supply chain works. He couldn't give away copies of seeing the whole, nobody was interested. You know, they, they were interested in what was going on within the four walls of their business, but getting executives to pay attention to the overall supply chain was a tougher challenge. So do the why, why uh, on that. Why do you think that so is? Distributors, distributors exist as long as CEOs think that way. But as soon as the CEO starts looking at what are all the links in this chain and what's this distributor really doing for us, and can I just buy direct from the factory, um, distributors that are not creating any value are at enormous risk. Um, and so well, I, I think <laughs> distributors are living on borrowed time. It's a matter of time until executives figure that out. Well, so, so really I have another story for you, Bill, that was the, the flip side of that exact coin. Uh, I did work with a manufacturer that grew large and successful on the back of its distribution channel because in the beginning they had an excellent product that was that outclassed anything else in the market. It performed better. It was uh, about the same price, but it lasted a lot. It was filtration. Okay, and and lasted a lot longer, and there was a, a it was just a, a much better solution uh, for restaurants and hotels um, that needed um, better water quality. And so they grew and they grew and they grew. But then one day, the chairman of the company happened to be on the golf course with one of their big customers, a big big uh, uh, retail chain of restaurants and they said, hey, can we go direct? So, of course, they're going to say yes to that customer. And pretty soon, they had a strategic account department with four people in it. And the strategic account department wasn't growing. And we got brought in to help them. And when we did a, uh, a Kaizen event to try and map out what do they do and where are the bottlenecks, People were sort of chagrined and shocked because of one salesperson's story that they all had lived. Uh, he was a new guy. He had been there about six months, and he landed a about a $600,000 order with a chain called Wendy's, right? you know, hamburger place. Sure. The next 12 months he spent trying to make sure that the right pieces and parts and fittings reached the right restaurant with the right service technician at the right time. 
because there was nobody else in the company who, whose job was to do that. It had all been managed by the distribution chain in the past, and the company was blind to all that labor. And so now they had these highly paid national account managers who were running interference to make sure that their customers got what they wanted. And it was not working. It was ugly. These guys were spending 90 to 95% of their time on service issues. And that was the bottleneck. You know, it gets right at the heart of the whole concept of value stream management. Most of my consulting practice anymore is restructuring companies from functional organizations, uh, getting them out of their silos and aligning them by value streams. The companies that I work with, and if I were working with with those people, um, then my you know my uh, advice to them would have been to to tell them that no, you, you can't just have a different salesperson coming from the same distribution and service operations that are taking care of everybody else, you're not going to have a one-size-fits-all distribution operation and a one-size-fits-all service group um, and think that they're going to be configured to provide value to this big national account, which has a completely different value proposition than uh, than all whatever the mom-and-pop places you've been selling to through um, through right. other channels. Right. Um, companies I go to, I work with, um, you know, one big consumer products manufacturer who, uh, if you went in there and asked where's the purchasing department or where's the engineering department or where's the sales department, they would tell you we don't have that. Um, we've got a Walmart department. We've got an all-other consumer products department. We've got a professional products department. Um, and every one of those has all of the necessary technical skills within it um, to uh, deliver from beginning to end based on those end customer value propositions. I think the guy was foolish to think that he was going to be able to uh, create value for those big strategic accounts through the same supply chain processes, the same warehouse distribution, the same service. <laughs> so, so, wait, wait, wait. I don't want to buy the same thing that General Electric buys, you know? <laughs> So yeah, you, you need a Uber method. I, you know, they got a small company here, as small as they get. Uh, right. So senior you know, executive of a big company who's kind of foolish sometimes. What a surprise! I mean, yeah. that's frustrating. That yeah, hurts people. I mean, that big problem is that none of us uh, know what we don't know. Right. You know, and it wouldn't surprise me if the senior executive from that company came out of accounting or sales. Didn't really appreciate the. Um, the significant differences back in the warehouse and with the service people running around and, you know, that, that, uh, uh, you know, I think that it's important that the senior people really understand the details of, of those parts of the company where the core of the value proposition is created. Well, it, um, it goes to a lot of the people in those, um, in management positions generally, I would say, they sort of know we need a we need a better process. You know, let's. I was with one last week. Um, you know, they they sort of felt in their bones. Well, well, we'll just go get best. We just need to know what the best practices are out there, and then you know we'll just start doing that. And I had to tell them I don't really know of any case ever in my career where somebody went out and found a best practice and was able to 
import it into their context and actually make it work. That's not how it works. They think they need a new process, but what they really need is a way to improve the process they already have. And most companies are profoundly, they don't have a way to do that. Would you agree? Well, they, they may or may not need to reinvent their process, but I think that uh, without knowing the process, maybe the whole thing does need to get blown up and reinvented. But, um, you know, but more often than not, you're right. Um, but I think that uh, that gets at another another uh, key point with lean that I learned a long time ago that uh, you're never going to improve by running around looking at other companies and viewing it as a cafeteria where you're going to go take something somebody else is doing well and then right. plug and play your own company and think it's going to work. Um, but it's, as someone told me, that uh, you don't become lean by uh, by looking at Toyota through your own eyes. You become lean by looking at your own company through Toyota eyes. Yeah. You know, how do you? How do you learn to look at your company and recognize where the waste is, recognize where the inefficiency and the delay is, and where the cultural breakdowns are? And engaging um, your people to see it as well and to volunteer improvements. Absolutely. You know, that gets at the culture of the company. But, you know, the culture of the company can be can only be effective if the senior folks really understand what we're trying to do here and where and how value is created and where where waste is and then instill that vision in in people you know that this is this is what we're this is what we want you to look at you know this is these are the kinds of ideas we want you know if you, you just go to the, the employees and say hey we want your ideas for improvement you know they're going to come back with a list of better things to have in the company lunchroom you know, i mean what do you mean Get better at what? Improve what? Yeah. You, know, you, you got to kind of channel that vision, you know, that uh, get better, you know, or or uh, eliminate waste or, you know, cut costs. That means something different to everybody. Um, so the senior folks have to start and they have to be able to see their own company. And it sounds like the senior folks at that company weren't able to see what they were doing very well. Right. Yeah, my my take on that is always that, that that's because they're so tunnel visioned on cost. You know, if you went into them and said, "Look, we need to break your service department into two. We need to have a service department for these key accounts and a different service department for all of the the rest of the the cats and dogs," um, because it's a different uh, a different requirement, different mm -hmm. process. Um, most of them would come back and say, "But that's inefficient." What if you know? <laughs> I want to save the travel money when I have that service guy out there at a Wendy's. Um, I don't want him to just drive past some other small place that he could have stopped at. You know, I want to, I want to have low, low travel costs. Some oh, geez, you know, uh, you know, that's called suboptimization, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it is, and and uh, yeah, but that just comes back to you know, something that that I've come to believe for the last several years that. Uh, uh, Cost reduction is the strategy for companies that don't really have a strategy. Um, that if that's all you got, so we just want to keep doing what we've been doing. We just need to figure out how to do it cheap. Then that's that's not much vision. That's not much strategy, and you certainly don't need to pay an executive a lot of money to come up with that. Right. Um, and but that's uh, you know kind of the world we world we live in and that's what you get when you have people from uh from 
uh, an accounting and finance orientation, an intense one, more often than not running companies or having right. too strong a voice in the company. Right. Right. So, so to me, in the whole world of sales and marketing, um, the challenge has been that it's all invisible. And, you know, value added is invisible. If a salesperson's working in an account for six months and hasn't gotten an order yet, is he creating value or waste? You have to have a way to know that. Um, and when you, when you define the terms and just follow, you know, logic and, and proper, rational, you know, definitions and start measuring things, um, a world of, of valuable things can happen. And we're almost out of time here, but one of the things we did not get to that I wanted to get to um, was this whole issue of forecast accuracy. You had some charts I really liked that demonstrated uh, the capacity of production in a manufacturing company, kind of like a step function as they you know, invest to increase manufacturing capacity. And then the sales number is a zigzag on either side, right, of that capacity over time. And that is very, very costly. So how do you get more in alignment with your customers and what they need to purchase when? And the sales and the marketing function are key to being able to do that. I have had clients with 94, 96% statistically measured forecast accuracy by following this method of defining the observable things that make customers more or less likely to buy and distinguishing the value that they would pay for, you know, versus what they would not. Um, maybe you and I could set a date in the future to delve into a subject like that more deeply. Would that be something that you'd be interested in? Um, yeah, I most certainly would. Um, and in my, uh, you know, perhaps it's 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 nuanced, but uh, my view is that companies um, need to do less forecasting and more planning. Um, and you know, if they're if you have somebody with ninety five percent forecast accuracy, then that really wasn't a forecast; that was a plan. That's a good that point. Was, they knew exactly what they were going to do, and then they went out and did it, um, which is a far cry from people. Um, buying some expensive statistical model yeah. that's going to take some wild guess at what we're you know what we're going to sell based on uh, you know some of the least squares yep. uh, math and then uh, and then putting in a cost base to do that and then wondering why it didn't happen exactly that's um, not based on reality so, that's for sure no and so you know yeah I'd be more than happy to to talk about that and. Uh, but it really gets into uh, pricing and uh, and costing and how you use price as, as the dial um, to to heat up and cool off the sales and uh, and keep sales aligned with capacity, keep sales at whatever the plan was. And I think there's um, a couple of other levers, but we will have to pick that up at another time. Bill, if someone has listened to this and wants to get a hold of you, uh, how would they do that? Do you have some sort of offer on your website or something that so someone can get more of the way you think? Sure. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, my grandmother used to tell me when I was young that fools' names and fools' faces always appear in public places, and so I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm something of a fool. I'm not hard to find. You can find me on uh, uh, I'm at www.bill-waddell.com. Um, find me on Facebook, find me on Twitter, find me uh, in YouTube. 
there are a lot of YouTube videos out there that get into a lot of this. Um, but, uh, you know, this is these kinds of conversations with what I do for a living. So if somebody's got a question or, or is interested in something, uh, um, just go on my website. It's got my email address, my, uh, my phone number. I'm not hard to find. Um, and be glad to help uh, anybody who wants to follow up on any of this if they have any questions or concerns or great wanted to um, that's my idea of a good time so <laughs> feel free right. well good I thank you very much for your uh, generous time and your insights today I look forward to chatting with you again and until then Bill uh, travel safe well thank you for having me Michael and uh, look forward to talking to you again The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.